tonight on Arena. Celebrating and remembering the life and work of Sidney Poitier and Hilary Rose on the treaty debates, Smother and the Young Offenders. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. News came through today that the great Hollywood actor Sidney Poitier died. He was a trailblazer as a black actor in a very white industry. In the heat of the night, the defiant ones and guess who's coming to dinner are among his standout performances. With me this evening is Stephen Benedict, who only last night helped us to say goodbye to another Hollywood legend, Peter Bogdanovich. Now, while colourblind casting may be more common in films today, more most recently, for example, The Tragedy of Macbeth with Denzel Washington and other black actors in the leading roles, this certainly was not the case of Hollywood in Poitiers early days uh, and and Stephen it is ironic I think when you were talking about Peter Bogdanovich last night you said some of the greats that are still with us and Sidney Poitier was in that list Yeah we were talking the piece that I was actually doing was about Stanislavski and method acting and um, Sidney Poitier was um, he didn't begin at the Actors Studio in New York but that was he, he um, supplemented his studying his craft when he went there so he, we, we did mention his name thinking he was alive and well and celebrating his great work and then sadly today. You know, he's a a name that will be well known to listeners of a certain age but there may be those listeners who will say Sidney Poitier, what is all the fuss about? He really was a a, a trailblazer. Yeah, I think for young listeners um, if I were to mention Chadwick Boson, um, Idris Elba and Denzel Washington and multiply them all by ten and then we're sort of getting close to the scale of Poitier's magnitude as an actor. The only thing was that when Poitier started out, he did not have a black role model to follow mm. in, in Hollywood. Uh, he was one of the truly rare figures, I think, whose life transcended his career um, because he campaigned tirelessly uh, for the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. He also t- campaigned for better education and health and against poverty. And, you know, he came to prominence, as I said, in the 1950s and 60s, mm. in an age that isn't too different for ours now, you know, in an age when the very security of the American Union is under threat from extreme white wing forces back in the 50s and 60s who wanted to maintain segregation. And he was marching alongside the likes of Dr. Martin Luther King and other prominent members of the civil rights movement, protesting against the Jim Crow laws, which, as we know, were enshrined in the wake of the abolition of slavery to continue slavery by another name and in a very, very diluted version. But the thing for me about Poitiers passing is that he's part of a prominent um, generation of a black American artist who lived beautifully into old age and died peacefully in their beds. Yeah, okay. you, you, I, I noticed a tweet that you put out today talking about a beautiful life yeah. magnificently lived yeah. because acting, which we will talk about the, those great films, but mm. it was a, a small part of so much Poitier's life. Yeah, and we've got to put it in context. You know, when he arrived in Hollywood, how difficult it was for black actors to even get a support role or even have a few lines on screen. And, you know, just talking about the, the generation of the beautiful lives, um, artists such, I mean, we lost Aretha Franklin a couple of years ago, but I'm talking about people like Harry Belafonte. The music Who was is, a friend of Poitier. Exactly. They're all friends of each other. The magnificent genius of Quincy Jones, the musician and the artist and the, and the producer. The great impresario Clarence Savant. They did not die young at the end of a gun. Okay, mm-hmm. They have not died destitute. They have not died as a result of a drug overdose. I'm talking about Dorothy Dandridge in 1964 because of the inherited psychological trauma that they inherited. We know trauma is inherited. 
that they inherited from their forefathers who were subject to the terrible abuse and of bigots of society. And that is the world that Poitiers was born into and that is the world that he dedicated his life to eradicating. Yeah. And, and that's and beyond his acting. And, and also put into this that he came from uh, serious poverty with a very little formal education. He couldn't read when he arrived in New York. York. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the beauty, the stroke of luck that um, started his life. Um, his parents were on holiday from Bahamas. He was His parents were from the, from the Bahamas and he was on holiday in Miami. Sorry, his parents were on holiday when he was in Miami. Yes. And his mother was very heavily pregnant. She gave birth to him prematurely. And by, by luck of that, he was granted, um, automatically granted American citizenship. He grew up then in, back in the Bahamas. But as you said... Um, in, in great poverty. Yeah. He, was the, he was the seventh child, I think, in the family. When he went to New York as a teenager, um, shortly thereafter, he tried to, he applied to the African Negro Theatre, but they turned him down because he didn't speak American English. He spoke with such a heavy accent. Mm. So he had to go off and learn American English and speak with a New York accent. And when he reapplied, then he was accepted. And uh, there were early roles in theatre. In fact, he was an understudy, I read, to <laughs> Harry Belafonte, his, his pal at one stage. Belafonte was sick. Poitier went on and the rest is history. That's right. And, you know, and a beautiful moment occurred when um, Denzel Washington received his, his Academy Award in 2002 for, for Training Day. That was the same year that Sidney Poitier was given the Lifetime Achievement Award by mm. the Academy. And Denzel said, I'm always chasing you, Sidney. Yeah. Right. So the, the baton is, is, is passed yeah. on. Let's look at some of some of the great work, and I suppose um, Virgil Tibbs in 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 the heat of the night. It, this is a huge role. Was a huge role. This was the first him. time I ever saw him. Yeah, and it was, a, it was. You know, this is the great thing. We've got to understand the the importance of very very liberal progressive writers, directors, and producers in Hollywood. And it's interesting the frequency with which Jewish writers, directors and producers were instrumental in the development of Sidney Poitier's career. Just on, the, on that Jewish side of things, he also, Poitier, at one point, I think it was during that acceptance of the Lifetime Achievement Award, that he wanted to thank the Jewish man who taught him how to read. He said, I can't remember his name, but I will be forever in his, his debt. debt. Yeah. And, you know, we have Joseph L. Mankiewicz. He cast him very early on in a movie called No Way Out in 1950, where he played a doctor. Um, you've also got Walter Mirisch who cast him in In the Heat of the Night and then you've got Stanley Kramer who cast him in The Defiant Ones Lilies in the Field and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and so these were very very important figures in his career I think whichever one you want to have uh, uh, whatever clip you want to mm. choose from we have maybe the no, no Way Out or the Defiant but, Ones. But let's, let's listen to, to No Way Out. Um, yeah. Just give us. So he's playing a doctor here, Dr. Luther Brooks, who's dealing with. Uh, Richard Whitmark is a criminal who's brought into the hospital, and he's a very, very bigoted character, and uh, Sidney Poitier has to treat him. But the clip that we have is a conversation that we have with a fellow black actor called Dots Johnson in an elevator. Hey, what about that new exam you had to take? I thought you was a regular doctor already. State board? Everybody's got to take it so you can get your license to practice. Well, the boys are saying it's just for colored doctors. Well, you can tell the boys it's for all doctors. I bet they laid it on you. No more than anybody else. They don't even ask your name. They give you a number. They look at your number. They know. They got ways of knowing. Oh, why don't you quit? Dots Johnson there and uh, Sidney Poitier in a clip from the 1950 movie No Way Out. Stephen Bendick with me this evening, uh, this evening remembering the life and work of Sidney Poitier. That's a very interesting clip. It's two black actors. And, you know, the, the, I suppose if you were to put the equivalent of the Bechdel test yes. regarding, uh, you know, what's often, obviously it's a thing about um, women, w- of women, women in, film. in films. 
if you were to put that type of test on that clip, how would it fare? Well, the brilliant thing is that they're talking without a white person present to, uh, to begin with, and they're alluding to the injustices of both of them and how they face how they face that those injustices together, but also how they're going to face them separately and differently because um, because Doth Johnson plays the intern, the or oh, sorry, the orderly. And Sidney Poitier is the doctor. He's aspiring to be a doctor. So mm. they're both trying to challenge the system from different ways. Just as, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned the Bechdel test because that is the way, you know, women are under or misrepresented in the film because the assumption for a long time is that all women do is talk about men, even when men aren't present. And so we have here is our two men talking about careers. Yeah. That's it. And uh, not, re- not referring, well, they do refer to white men in the midst of that, but that's it's It's, it's it. an illusion. Yeah. They allude to it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Let's listen to what Poitier had to say. No, actually, I'll come back to that because it, 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 it strikes me that that Bechdel test, I saw another clip today of Poitier t- talking, getting very annoyed at a press conference mm. with, with the press for constantly asking him about the fact that he was a black actor. Yeah. Um, he, he wanted them to, to see him as more than just a black actor. Well, I think he was taking up Dr. Martin Luther King's great refrain. The, you know, we look forward to the day that a person is not judged on the colour of the skin mm. or the, the content or the character. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, Jane Campion talking about, will you ever stop mentioning, please, that I'm the first and the only woman to have won the Palm Door? Now, she's no longer the, the only woman to have won the Palm Door. But the thing is, you've got to look beyond that to sort of to normalise the achievement as opposed to some contextualise yeah. it within their gender or their, their ethnicity. Uh, in the heat of the night, then, uh, explain the character that he's playing here and then I'll play the clip. Well, he plays uh, um, Virgil Tibbs. He's, a, de- he's um, a detective and he just so happens to be passing through the south, the deep deep south, and he's waiting for a connecting train. And it just so happens that a murder takes place in the deep, ta- deep south town and he's hauled in on the immediate assumption that because he's black and he's got $400 in his wallet, he must have, com- he must have committed this crime. Right, and and the people warned there is a, obviously a, a reference within this clip uh, from from the white police officer, but it's necessary in terms yes. of, of the very important line that Virgil yes. Tibbs has immediately afterwards. Well, when I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of seventeen degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Oh, Harv's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Uh, Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What did they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs! Take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now! Sidney Poitier there in a scene from In the Heat of the Night. You were going to say something yeah, it's, as it's we were listening to that, Stephen. It was the first time I saw Sidney Poitier on screen. I was watching the movie, I think it was about 13 on television. And now I wouldn't have understood the cultural significance of calling me Mr. Tibbs. But mm. the delivery and the close-up on his face, I said to my, even then as a 13-year-old, I said, that's an important line. I don't know why, but the delivery has really impacted. And as a kid... My friends, we would say to each other, they call me. All right, <laughs> Mr. <is>. Whatever, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Benedict. Yeah. But in the, uh, in the case of they call me Mr. Tibbs, not only was it an important line in, in the heat of the night, it became the title of the sequel. Uh, that's correct. 1970, that's They cor- Call Me Mr. Tibbs. And then later on in the movie, um, he it's, he's conducting an investigation with Rod Steiger and... Um, a white man con- in- insults him and smacks him and Sidney Poitier smacked him back. 
Yeah, yeah, you know. So these are great a, mo- iconic moments, extraordinary moments yeah. in in terms of in terms of uh, theatre and film. Obviously, I think for a lot of people, guess who's coming to dinner will be the one they will remember. We heard a great clip from it on on Drive Time just before mm. we came to our that again. Even that the story that was told in that play was hugely important in that film. Yeah, and again, it was written or produced and directed by Stanley Kramer, and so he plays a young man who's brought home to dinner by a white girl, sorry, a white lady to her. White Parents, played by Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And the casting is very important because Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn would have represented the older generation. And that was the same year, as you said, uh, in the heat of the night. And so 1967 was a huge landmark watershed year because of the onset of the civil rights movement. And you got the counterculture movement in the United States and you also got women's liberation. And that all came to the fr- came to the front forefront in Guess, mm. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Personally, I don't think it's that great a movie. I think I know it's, its significance, but as a film, as a piece of film, it hasn't travelled that well. But it, it's, it's the significance of the piece that's yeah. probably more important. Tell me a bit about the Defiant Ones. I have a clip from that. The Defiant Ones, yeah. Now back again again to Stanley Kramer. Stanley Kramer wanted uh, Poitier to, to play the lead. And he was so keen on whole, um, Poitier playing the lead that he actually delayed production. And he had Marlon Brando to play opposite uh, Sidney Poitier in uh, the Defiant Ones. But because he delayed the production, Brando was then committed to another picture and had to go, go off. So they, they cast Tony Curtis opposite uh, Sidney Poitier. Mm. Now, the thing was, t- so Tony Curtis then insisted that Sidney Poitier play, share equal billing above the title. And to my knowledge, it's the very, very first time that a black American actor was given that by a Hollywood student. Now, here's the great thing. Tony Curtis himself, again, was a Jewish, car- Jewish actor. And so he was saying, look, I understand what it is to grow up in New York and to suffer the prejudices and, the, and bigotry. So I'm reaching out my hand here and let's the two of us share the title billing together above the, of the movie. All right. Uh, let's have a listen to a clip. And so he's changed. Sydney Poitier is actually changed they're handcuffed, to... Sorry, yes, they're, they're in hand- the deep south and they're handcuffed together. They've broken away from the chain gang and they're on the run. What's the matter? You afraid of catching my colour? You picking a hand at me. To you, the big shot taker? You're nothing. You're just a talker. Go on, tell me all that big talk about Charlie Potatoes. When the chain's off and nobody's chasing you. Come on. You can't, can you? You can't because you're nothing. You're not even a man. You're a monkey on a stick. That cracker mob back there, they pulled the string and you jumped. Said one day we were going to tangle, Joker. You said the time was going to come, and that time is now. That's Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier there in a scene from The Defiant Ones. And let's just listen to a clip of Poitier himself talking about that film. The Defiant Ones grew out of the times, couldn't possibly have grown out of what was. Hollywood at that time, Hollywood at that time was so far distanced from the fact of the Defiant Ones. But there was a filmmaker, Stanley Kramer, he was quite a remarkable personality, a wonderful filmmaker, who had a vision of himself and a vision of our country and a vision of the industry. And it was a personal choice of his to articulate himself as an artist. So Hollywood was lucky to have him in its midst. Sidney Poitier there. Uh, finally, Stephen Benedict, uh, the, the, the legacy here goes beyond acting. 
Yeah, and he was a U.S. ambassador to Britain. He was honored by the Kennedy's Honors Center, and as I said to you, he tired. He campaigned tirelessly to against poverty, to improve education and healthcare for people of minorities and in, born into destitution. That was really his greatest yes. life's work. Thanks for doing that for us this evening. That's Stephen Benedict speaking to us about Sidney Poitier, whose death was announced earlier today. Known to many as Mairead, the tormented mother of Conor McSweeney in the Young Offenders series, Hilary Rose will be back on our screens this Sunday night in a very different role, Smother. RTE's hit drama from last year returns for a second series and we can catch up with the Ahern family after the death of Dennis and the cover-up that followed. She will also grace, that is... Um, Hillary will also grace our screens on Tuesday night as Miriam McSweeney, the TD who debated for almost three hours in the Doyle in 1921 to oppose the treaty. Hillary Rose is, is standing by to speak with me right now, but let's just remind ourselves of the wonderful Maraid uh, McSweeney. And here she is uh, bringing her son Connor to confront the mother of one of his classmates who has been making rude comments about Maraid. Rachel O'Connell plays Maraid's nemesis, Nancy Madigan. Mairead McSweeney, <laughs> it's been far too long. Nancy Madigan, what a pleasant surprise. How would you know her? We're all school buddies, isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're all friends. Fancy that. Yeah, fancy that. Nancy couldn't make any of her own friends on account of having a rotten personality. <laughs> so she stole my friend instead. Her name was Francesca and I do believe she was my friend first. No, she wasn't silly. She was my friend first. <laughs> you see, Gavin, Maraid only thought Francesca was her friend first, but Francesca told me she didn't like Maraid all that much. So even though she knew her first, they weren't actually friends first. The devil's in the details, the bygones be bygones, blah, blah, blah. She was my friend first. Now, what's this you coming to my house all about? Well, it turns out your son Gavin has been saying nasty things about me to Connor. Oh. Gavin, is that true? Oh, yeah, I called her a whore. Was there anything else you wanted? I want an apology. <laughs> no. Well, you're not going to get one from me or my son. So why don't you take that little scumbag son of yours and go back to that kip of a house you live in and get off my property. <laughs> oh, oh, fuck! Back up here and I fix it for you. What's going on? <laughs> See there, from the young offenders, Hilary Rose in the midst of it all. I never knew that a laugh could convey quite so much nastiness, Hilary Rose, as it does in that scene. Yeah, it was uh, certainly tinged with bitterness. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it takes me back. That was great fun to shoot. Really good fun to shoot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, The Young Offenders was such a, a great success for you. And, and now okay. the Smother obviously coming uh, coming along quite quickly afterwards mm. uh, must be a great thing too. And ironically, very different style of character for sure in Alana, the character that you play in Smother. But ironically, once again, it, there's a best friend or an old best friend aspect to this in that Alana is or was the best friend of Val, the character played by Dervic Kerwin. Mm, yeah, that's right. There's a kind of a, a frenemy theme going on. Um, they were best friends. They fell out uh, for reasons that we kind of discover uh, more so in season two. And yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting because the character of Alana, she kind of tries to um, almost worm her way back into the life of the Aherns because she was very much involved in their family. 
um, from the early days. And, uh, you know, she tries to get back in there. So season two is really interesting to watch how that unfolds and how their suspicion of her um, it takes hold a little bit. Uh, mind you, I, I, I'm not sure why anybody would want to worm their way back into the lives of the Aherns. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I, I, I think in a sense, I mean, they're really well-written, well-rounded characters, uh, amazing female protagonists, um, but they're kind of nasty pieces of work, a lot of them. So it's, it's uh, but it's brilliant to watch. It really is. It's such a, a thrilling piece, you know. Yeah, I, I, I was noticing, I saw, I was lucky enough to get to see the first episode of the season and I know you're going to be very careful about what you tell me where things go, mm. but I did notice and I, I wondered if this was intentional or whether you can uh, help me along with it. In season one, Alana had, you know, she quite a harsh look to her at times. The hair was often mm. pulled back, gelled back off or, or off your face. You had, you know, almost mm. goth style makeup sometimes, very you know, purple lipstick, that type of thing. There's a much softer look to her in, in season two. Yeah, I think, you know, it was a discussion that we we had, um, uh, myself and Dahi, the director, who's a, an amazing director, and it felt that she was a little bit out of place almost with that look in season one. Um, and I think time has passed as well from, you know, season one to season two, and she's in a relationship uh, with, um, well, I can't give too much away, actually. No. <laughs> but she, she's, in a, she's in a relationship, we shall say. Um, and so it kind of looks like Alana has softened somewhat, um, you know, so I think the look really lended itself to that. Yeah, well, it's OK. I think you can give away that she's in a relationship with uh, Frank, played by Conor Mullen, because I'm about to play a clip between the two okay, of good. them. So it's either me or you that's just giving it away. But I, yeah, I think we kind of knew towards the end of season one that things were there was something was kind of stirring between the two of them. We weren't quite sure what. So let's have mm. a let's have a listen to a, a scene that that gives us a sense of that. Um, now we should. A stranger has come back to town as well. That's an important aspect of season two, mm. and it turns mm-hmm. out that that this is a, a a character called Finn, who's Dennis's estranged son, and we'll hear a reference to him in the midst of this clip. Frank, mm-hmm. did you tell Val it was me said you should get in touch with Finn? <laughs> No. My God, she'd have your eyes out. No, you only said what I was already thinking, so morally it was the right thing to do. Why were we all so blinded by Dennis when you were right there all along? Believe me, I often ask myself the same question. Finn's going to stick around, maybe give him work on site. Yeah. If he wants. I mean, it's about time someone in this family started looking out for him. Mm, won't be easy. What do you mean? He's just found family. And if Val wants you out of that family, well, she can be pretty formidable. Hmm. I would say that any son of Dennis could be pretty formidable too. Hmm. There are lots to watch out for. Hilary Rose as Alana, Conor Mullen as Frank in that scene from Smother. Just one further question. On, are, are you leading us up a, a bit of a merry dance with the very soft look or does she turn on us <laughs> as, ta- as the series goes on? I'm wondering, Hilary. 
Sean, you're just going to have to wait and I see. I thought you'd say that. <laughs> All right. OK, let us let us, I, I was also very interested today to see um, you playing Miriam McSweeney in the dramatised 1921 Doll debates of the treaty. Mm-hmm. How much did you know about Miriam McSweeney heading into this? Was she a character? I mean, obviously, she's the brother or she's the sister, rather, of Terence McSweeney. And in, in Cork terms, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? When this project presented itself to me, I I I, I discovered her there and then. I I knew nothing about her, um, and like you said, in Cork, that would be considered. You know, Terence McSweeney was very very famous and remains so. And um, his sister Mary McSweeney was a, a wonderful, wonderful woman, very complex um, and a real staunch activist. You know and um, really fought for what she believed in. So I'm, I was really surprised, actually, that I didn't know about her um, prior to taking on the, her, you know, playing mm. her in State of Flux. And, and in State of Flux, uh, we, we get... Uh, let's listen to an extract, actually, from it. And this is from quite early on uh, in, in what was to be a two-hour and 40-minute speech, but obviously for the purposes of, of State of Flux, it's been edited down. Uh, and let's have, a, uh, let's have a li- listen to a section of it. And this is how she addresses uh, the Doyle and lays her cards on the table fairly, fairly immediately. I cannot promise that this will be very short. For I rise to speak with the deepest sense of my responsibility. Not only to those who sent me here, but for the whole Irish nation. I recognize that the will of the people is sovereign. And if the majority of the people in this country set up this free state government, it will be the government of the country. And I will be a rebel. Their first rebel. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, Mr. Arthur Griffith, advocates that treaty wholeheartedly and honestly. It embodies what he stood for his whole life. The only one who has spoken in favour of that is Mr. Griffith himself. The Minister for Finance, Michael Collins. His name alone would make that thing acceptable to most people in the country. If it's good enough for Michael Collins, it's good enough for me. (laughs) If Mick Collins went to hell in the morning, would you follow him there? No. But he has been honest about that document. He said it is a step towards the Republic. He believes that. I know many young men who vote with him believe that. I'm not impugning their honesty. I'm impugning their intelligence and their knowledge of history. I believe that what I went through for 74 days at Brixton gives me the right to speak for the honour of my nation now. And that's Hilary Rose as Mary McSweeney in uh, a scene from State of Flux, the the dramatisation of the treaty debates, which will be broadcast on on RT1 uh, next Tuesday evening at 11.25pm. She is a formidable woman. Uh, And that reference that she makes at the the end of that section that we heard Hilary to, 74 days uh, at Brixton Prison, she's referring to her brother's hunger strike. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a really brutal um, situation where, you know, he did go on strike for 74 days. She and her sister um, and I think his wife at the time stayed by his bedside as much as they could. But she was cruelly denied access to him on the day of his death. Um, So, you know, it was a very trauma informed speech and a very passionate speech as well. She proceeded to carry on the work that he left behind um, 
And, you know, it was really, really fascinating mm. to learn about her. And she, she herself spent time in prison as well and in, in, in Dublin. So, um, yeah, yeah, and, and that, that speech, as I said, two hours and 40 minutes, we get a, a very telescoped version, of, obviously, of it because yeah. it, they had to telescope a few days into a couple which, of hours of, of which, television. Which was, which was a relief to me. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, but, but I, 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 I did wonder in researching her, and even as I hear you speaking about her there, I think, is, is there, a, is there a, sh- a play in that? Is there a one-woman show in that? Is it a character that you'd like to explore further? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's something that um, not only myself, but a, a few others had commented on at the time when we were in production with State of Flux, that she, is, she deserves her own feature film, to be honest. She's a fascinating woman from start to finish. You know, she was one of seven children. She's, you know, educated in Cambridge. She came back to Cork, supported her whole family when her father passed away. She was the eldest. She became a teacher up in St. Angela's, which is actually where she was firstly a student of St. Angela's College, which is where I went to school. And then she became a teacher there Um, and then went on to set up her own school and and subsequently toured America, giving um, public speeches post Terence McSweeney's death. And she was considered really on par with Dev and Michael Collins at the time which is kind of shocking to think that she, you know, was kind of eradicated from mm. Irish history for quite a while, you know. Well, I think you've just done the pitch for either a television series or a feature <laughs> film about her. And, and when you look across, you know, Maraid, uh, ironically, McSweeney, um, yes, who's the character yes. in, the, in The Young Offenders, uh, the Alana character in, in Smother, and this character now, the, the character of Mary McSweeney in, in State of Flux. How important is it for you to kind of get that balance between the very comic roles, clearly in the case of Maraid, and the, mm. the, the way more serious and dramatic roles in the case of Alana and the real life character in the case of Mary McSweeney? Yeah, for me, I mean, as an actor, it's it's kind of, I'm getting to do now what I always wanted to do, which is a range of roles. Because um, I always felt that that was just more interesting work for me. Um, and so, yeah, to be able to kind of bounce from comedy to drama and then, you know, to step in and do this really unusual project of State of Flux, which was kind of part historical documentary, behind the scenes stuff, um, you know, and then to play, a, you know, somebody who, who was such an important uh, historical figure, it kind of, it has its own weight that you have to uh, carry in a sense when you're, you know, trying to be faithful in the portrayal of her. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved it all, to be honest. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you have a lot to thank the Young Offenders for because it, it, has it really opened doors that possibly you were finding difficult to open previous to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, The Young Offenders was such a massive hit. We started with the film in 2016 um, and then obviously went on to the BBC series. So, yeah, absolutely. When you, you know, land big projects like that, it definitely does open doors um, and gives you more choice, which is always uh, a lovely thing as an actor. Well, you you deserve it, Hilary, and congratulations to you (laughs) on on that. I look forward to seeing more of Mary McSweeney in some kind of production in in the future. Lovely to speak with you this evening. Thanks very much, Hilary. That's I appreciate it. it. That's Hilary Rose and Smother is on RTE1 television this Sunday 9.30pm. State of Flux will be on RTE1 on Tuesday evening 11.25pm. 
Now, normally this time on a Friday, we'd be looking at album reviews, but the first Friday of January, traditionally the last day any artist wants to be releasing new material. So this evening, I'm joined by two of our regular music reviewers to talk about what audiences can look forward to in 2022 in terms of breakthrough Irish artists, international music, visiting artists and much more. Nadine O'Regan and Alan Corr have taken a look at all of the above and I'm going to start close to home. Um, in fact, I'm going to start with one of uh, your choices, uh, Alan, Alan Corr. Uh, and I'm just going to play her, actually, and you can tell me about her afterwards because I love this sound. Clara Tracy and a track called Soap Girls. Once upon a time we were so girls taking a bath Salmon pink shaving And that's Clara Tracy and a track called Soap Girls, one of the choices of Alan Corr as one of the potential uh, breakthrough acts, Irish acts of 2022. Amazing sound, very theatrical, Alan. Tell me a little bit more about her. Well, Clara is actually from Enniskillen, uh, but I, sh- I think you'll agree, Sean, there's something decidedly Parisian yeah. about her skittish, you know, chanson pop that brings to mind uh, the likes of Jane Birkin. Now, this may have something to do with the fact that she worked in a Parisian law firm and performed in jazz cafes around Paris before settling back in Ireland. And you'd have to agree that her, her, her voice is uh, trilling, not, not thrilling, it's bird-like almost, and the arrangements have a very high quirk quotient, which may not be to everyone's taste. But I think that she's striving for something quite different on these electro uh, pocket symphonies. Now, uh, her debut album, Black Forest, uh, which is produced by Gilla Band's Daniel Fox, is out on the Dundalk label uh, Pisa Pisa Records in early 2022. So I think there's a lot uh, in store for us uh, from Clara Tracy in... In, in, in this year. Yeah, and certainly on the basis of that track, I'd, I'd like to hear a, a lot more. Nadine, uh, you've gone in particular, you've a couple of suggestions uh, for breakthrough acts, but let's talk a little bit about uh, Lady Bird. Uh, well, actually, one of the acts that I was picking was uh, actually Sinead O'Brien, who uh, is the uh, Limerick-raised, uh, Dublin-born, actually, I believe, uh, artist who's living in London at the moment. And uh, she's uh, already attracting celebrity fans in the shape of Simon Le Bon from Duran Duran. And she also has a background in fashion in addition to releasing music. She's due to play the Grand Social in mm. February. And uh, she's one of those people that she's very, very strongly influenced um, by the likes of, say, Patti Smith and by writers as well as musicians. And her music is so interesting. It's so rhythmic and it's spoken word almost, um, but highly, highly kind of idiosyncratic, and, and fresh, she was original. Yeah, she was raised in Limerick. There's, you mean, there's a whole raft of artists who seem to be coming out of Limerick at the moment. Is, 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 yeah. What is that about? Is it just a, a moment in time that Limerick is having? Yeah, it could be. I mean, the band When Young actually have collaborated with her and it seems like there is kind of a scene, there's a hip-hop scene now and there is that kind of indie sensibility. It feels like there's a new vigour in the city, which, 
is is really tremendous and I mean I guess everyone from Blind Boy forward you know like there's there's a feeling of I suppose a charge in the air and that you can do anything because I suppose once you put your, your music onto Spotify even though there are so many artists these days it is possible to connect to people and fans in countries all over the world so it doesn't really matter what city in Ireland you're or indeed what town or village in Ireland you're from you can actually attract an international audience. Yeah the, the joys of globalisation is what you're talking about there I suppose we won't get into Indeed. the downsides just at the moment let's leave those to the one side let's listen to Sinead O'Brien and a track called Kid Stuff Kid Stuff That which I ignored That which I ignored Picture a portrait of yourself and that is what you are Cropped Master the edit The length and get the whole head in Not only a mouth talking not again are not ready for that yet not again spent time on it meditated ring around the sun not to leave until I know it that which I ignore choose shoes only for reinforcement Kid Stuff the title of the track there from Sinead O'Brien and I see what you mean there Nadine Nadine O'Regan that one of Nadine's uh, choices as a breakthrough act for 2022 I see what you mean about that uh, spoken word element in, mm. in her material and it, it, there's a kind of a performative element a performative element to that in the same way as we got in the Clara Tracy track uh, that, that, that Alan had chosen yeah, absolutely. And I, she's one of the artists that I'm most looking forward to seeing live in 2022 because I think she genuinely has something very different. And one of the things at the moment is, look, you know, there is there is so much music out there, but sometimes mm. it is a copy of a copy of a copy. And so when you come across someone where, that you think is taking their inspiration from older influences uh, in actually the way Fontaine's DC did so successfully over the last few albums, uh, it's really, it, it feels like entirely mm. new. And I know some people will say, hang on a minute, Patti Smith, <laughs> Patti Smith was there first and then PJ Harvey was there after her. Um, but at the same time, it feels like she doesn't care that much about radio play, which is another kind of interesting aspect because she hasn't really dialed down any of the oddness. You know, you can hear yeah. it in that track. It's unusual and it's and it's kind of stands on its own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, who else is standing out for you in the Irish scene, first of all, Alan? Well, uh, I like a band from Cork called Pretty Happy. Uh, they've already won comparisons with uh, Pixies and the fellow, their fellow Corkonians, Nun Attacks, who people might remember from the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, they're a trio, they're a punk pop trio made up of uh, Aaron, Abbey and Andy. And Cork has always been a happy hunting ground for left of centre mm. oddball pop uh, with a kind of surreal streak as, as wide as the River Lee. And these guys really amp up the eccentricity on tracks like CCC and Pseudocreme. There's also touches of sonic youth in their guitar approach and the kookiness I suppose of uh, David Byrne. They released a, a four-track EP last year called Slugger's Bridge. Uh, which sounds very Cork and evocative indeed. And they say uh, their songs are uniquely Cork, influenced greatly by the people and humour of this city. So expect more from these guys this year, Sean. And any band with a song called Finton O'Toole is all right by me. <laughs> all right. Um, let, us, let us move on to international uh, possibilities for breakthrough acts on the international scene. I don't know whether we've, we've, we've all been doing small trips, 5K, 10K. Do you remember those days? I don't know if you've only gone as far as the Isle of Wight in recent times but that's where you're going for your one of your favourite new acts uh, for, for next year possibly Nadine 
Yeah, Wet Leg, they are amazing. Uh, they've released a, a clutch of singles. They have their debut album is coming in April. And those singles, uh, they t- they've taken off like a rocket. Um, they've racked up millions of plays on Spotify. And the best way I could describe them is like they're a combination of uh, La Tigre and uh, actually the comedian Michael Fry, who's, who has released a lot of music. There's, Quite there's a mix. A, there's a weird... <laughs> There's a strange in-between a sound and it's so, so interesting. And, you know, if you're a fan of indie pop, I think you'll like it. Um, but the lyrics as well, they're wry, f- funny, and the videos are mad. You know, the girls, there's this two uh, vocalists, actually, and you'll find them just offering up really, really playful kind of tableau. And the guys are surrounding them sometimes in cornfields and they, they, they just have it all. They're one of those bands that I really like to see emerge because they're not just thinking about um, playing live or making a great record. They're also thinking about every aspect of the visual aesthetic as well. Again, well the, title, like, the title of the track I want to play is very visual. So you might, I, I don't know if there's a video attached to Chaise Long or not, is there? There is. Yeah. There is, yeah. Can you describe it? Bonkers. Oh, the video. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the video, uh, the lead vocalist is uh, is singing directly while the other vocalist is hiding her head wearing a bonnet and they're outside what looks like sort of a very old country house and uh, there's there's just a, a series of increasingly surreal scenes uh, where they're walking towards the camera and finding themselves in unusual places and it's just, it, I, I can't, you, you know, you really kind of have to see it. It is riveting. <laughs> well, let's see if we can Imagine it as we listen to this album. Going away to watch the video of that song almost the minute the program ends. Shays <laughs> Long from Wet Leg, one of the international breakthrough acts for Nadine O'Regan in, in 2022. Pink Panthers is the one that you have chosen, Alan. It, yeah, yeah. She's a 20 year old musician from Bath near Bristol. And she already has an air of mystique about her, Sean. Uh, she's just topped the prestigious and usually very uh, prescient BBC Sound of Poll. That's the poll in which movers and shakers in the UK are asked to give their hot tips for the coming year. And they're usually very spot on, having spotted the likes of uh, Adele over the past uh, 10 years or so. So this is Pink Pantress. Uh, she's very young. She's very new. Uh, her style is UK Garage. Uh, and a bit of pop with kind of alt-rock as well, which she herself cutely calls new nostalgia. Now, she's already had a hit in the UK with her uh, debut single, Just For Me, which is a very kind of canny and heady mix of very silky pop and UK garage. And it was later covered by Coldplay. Now, the fact that she's topped this BBC sound of 2022 already puts her in pole position. But I think the danger at this time of the year for music writers is they we, we tend to make grand predictions about the next big thing, hmm. only to find that the acts we've tipped become a cropper or the acts we've dismissed uh, make a big breakthrough. But I think that Pink Pantress is uh, one of the most kind of solid tips for this year.
Pink Panthers and a track called Pain. I don't know if she credits Eric Satie and on that track anywhere. It sounds like one of his piano pieces, one of his little playful gymnopedy mm. piano pieces. Uh, has she a background in, in classical music or is it, does she refer to that in any way? I'm, uh, I'm not incredibly, incredibly sure. I, I, I actually uh, checked the uh, Eric Satie thing earlier on. Uh, the thing that got me was Lily Allen from the sublime to the less sublime there, Sean. So certainly maybe she does have that kind of background. Yeah, I'm not could, sure. Could possibly be. All right. Are we tempting fate talking about potential concerts in in 2022, Nadine? Oh, gosh. Talking about concerts in 2022 is so dangerous. uh, And hopes have been so dashed in 2021. When you think about the likes of Electric Picnic, you know, Mm. was it going to happen? Was it not? And altogether now, it's it's very, very hard to guess at what's going to happen. But hopefully the Divine Comedy will go on tour with their greatest hits, which is uh, coming out, I believe, in March. Hopefully we'll get to see Red Hot Chili Peppers. They're they're set to play Marley Park this summer. Hopefully Elton John will be in Parky Cueve in July. And there are so many more great bands. Uh, Billie Eilish actually is Mm. due to play Ireland this summer. And it's just a, a question of keeping your fingers crossed and seeing how things go. I can see you in Parker Cueve um, if we can be if not miles standing away from each other <laughs> at such a gig. Yeah. I mean, that is one that you have to be at in a stadium for watching it happening and jumping up and down and enjoying yourself. So let's hope that the Elton John goes ahead for your sake and for many for other sure. people's sake, Nadine. Um, I think you, you're possibly in a more reflective mood in terms of the concert going that you've chosen, well, on the basis of one concert that you've chosen at any rate, well, Alan. To, to give the same kind of quick run down as Nadine did. I hope that Paul Brady and Andy Irvine play Vicar Street in February. I hope that Big Thief play the National Stadium in Dublin, uh, one of my favourite venues in the world. And Dry Cleaning, of course, are in the Button Factory. But yes, Sean, I suppose Damon Albarn, he's playing two nights, February the 23rd and 24th in the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Uh, so I, that'll be very interesting because you never mm. know what to expect from uh, from Damon. I mean, do we expect a Park Life style knees up? Uh, do we expect stuff from Gorillas? Who knows? But I think that the thing about this poly musical polymath uh, you know he, he's just a moving target all the time he's so prolific and so productive yeah. so he's playing these two nights uh, I, I'd imagine he's going to concentrate on his uh, most recent album his uh, second solo album The Nearer the Fountain uh, more, more Pure The Stream Flows it's a beautiful piece of work which has sound gorgeous in the well-appointed surrounds of the NCH so I really hope that happens yeah okay let's let's go to your albums for 2022 to finish up this year. I'll stick with you for this one Alan um, what are you looking forward to well, I mean, there's some definites coming up. Uh, you've definitely got a kind of a new uh, Coldplay, uh, not Coldplay, Sinead O'Connor album, a new Elvis Costello album. But the one, strangely enough, uh, that I'm looking forward to is Tears for Fears. Uh, they're releasing their first album in 18 years uh, on February the 25th. It's called The Tipping Point. And uh, it had a very kind of difficult gestation in that uh, Roland Arzabal, uh, one of the duo's wife, sadly died in 2017. And Kurt Smith, the other half of the duo, actually walked away from the, the project mid, mid, midway through. I've always been a big fan of this band, stretching all the way back to the early 80s. So I'll be very interested to see uh, what they do on Tipping Point, which is due out in February. Right, let's have a little listen to The Tipping Point. 
And that's just a little flavour of The Tipping Point, the title track from Tears for Fears' new album, uh, which is due out in February of this year. And pretty much, um, this year rather, pretty much sounding as you would expect them to sound there, I think, Alan. Oh, very much so. In fact, uh, the reason why Smith walked away is because they were involved with too many young producers. So that sounds like the classic Mm. uh, Tears for Fears sound to me. All right, Sean. All right, a couple of new albums that you have you have listed. New Dad, Tula McKay. Tell me about those two first of all, if you would, Nadine. Uh, the Tully McKay, uh, well, her album is due uh, this year as well. And she's somebody who really, from this time last year to, mm. to, to now, has made such an incredible impression. Of course, she did that uh, cover of the Saw Doctors N17 and completely reinvented the yeah. song. And she's performed so many times now on television. She has a podcast with her friend, uh, Faley Speaks. And she's really proving herself over and over again in both a live setting and on record with a handful of singles that... Uh, she has put out so I'm really yeah. looking forward to seeing her in a long player and and I know that you are also talking about fans of The Cure and the Pixies will might be thinking about New Dad but maybe we'll finish up oh, with, yeah. with we, maybe we'll finish up with CMAT um, if you would give us yeah. a, a sense of oh. why you're so excited about her forthcoming album I just think she's a phenomenal new talent she's blending country pop and indie. She manages to sound both like Dolly Parton and John Grant, sometimes <laughs> in the space of the same song, which is no small achievement. She is very ballsy in terms of how she goes about things. She's got a lot of flair and confidence and she's just signed her publishing deal. She's, you know, getting an audience of like many different types of people. You know, she's getting A-listed on radio, but she's also winning fans in the indie clubs, you know. So I think right. she's somebody that is a real all-rounder. Right, well, let's uh, finish up by listening to a little bit of Seaman's track called No More Virgos. Happy New Year to both of you and hope to see you in here soon talking about albums that have been released. In the meantime, let's uh, uh, finish up with No More Virgos from Seaman. I could fall apart from one kiss I had to make a deal with myself I've been doing so well You should have seen That's No More Virgos from CMAT and her hotly anticipated debut album due out next year. One of those chosen by Nadine O'Regan. Uh, thanks to Nadine and Alan Carr for that look forward to the year ahead and it will seem lots to look forward to. That is our lot for this Friday evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research. Janice Furphy was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening. Tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you on Monday once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1.